1: Are you ready for a little pep talk on your coffee break?
0: Then here's your host, Grace. This morning I've been chatting with Hannah, the CEO of Indigo and Iris. Hannah, who has brought Indigo and Iris to life along with founder Bonnie, is based in Christchurch and she also has a very interesting past life as the co-founder of Little Yellow Bird. Safe to say I could have asked her a million questions, but I tried to rein myself in. Indigo and Iris is a makeup brand, but as it calls itself, it's a makeup brand that gives a damn. 50% of the profits of their products go to charity, and that is not just a marketing ploy. The business actually started when founder Bonnie saw the Fred Hollow Foundation work in Vanuatu and has since gone on to cure over 300 people's eyesight in the Pacific, All from sales of their first product, the Levitate Mascara. Hannah and Bonnie have a lot of exciting plans in the works for Indigo and Iris, including their next launch, four shades of lipstick. I can't wait for you to hear all about what Hannah has learned along the way and how they plan to eventually be able to offer an entire face of makeup that is all linked to making a positive difference in the world. Amazing. I'm sorry this episode went a little bit longer than my usual 45 minutes but it's just such a wonderful business I couldn't bear to leave any questions out. Have a listen and you'll see what I mean. Here we go. Hi Hannah thank you so much for joining me on Pep Talk today. So you are phoning in from your bubble which I think is down in Christchurch is that right?
1: Yes, yeah, I am in my home office in Christchurch, well, technically Canterbury, I um, actually live in Burnham Military Camp, so I'm in a bit of a gated community down here, which is great.
0: Oh, fantastic, so you're tucked up in a bubble in a bubble, that's awesome. hmm Nice, all right, well, let's kick off first with some this or that questions, just to get a little bit warmed up. Um, so first up, we've got a nice and easy one for you, very basic, blue or pink? Pink, hundred <laughs> percent. I kind of figured you might say that having looked at the um, indigo and iris brand. So yes, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm on board with that. And then second, <laughs> we've a, I've actually gone very basic with these. We've got corn or peas. Oh, peas, peas. I love peas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next up is bowling or mini golf. Uh, mini golf, because I play a bit of golf, so I'm, I'm into golf. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, yeah are you able to do that at the moment or is that off the card? Uh, no that's
1: that's a level three activity I think uh, we have a golf course out here in Burnham so um, my boyfriend and I will hopefully get around and after we're out of level four.
0: Oh that'll be so good that's like next mm-hmm. week you'll be golfing yes. again. I'm guessing you don't have a mini golf set up there. <laughs> no we don't no but I do have mini golf yeah. <laughs> yeah everyone loves a bit of mini golf. Mm-hmm.
1: All right summer or winter? Summer. I'm not a skier I don't like cold I'm definitely a summer girl
0: oh bad time of year for you then I know (laughs) although it's been beautiful weather here so that's all right yeah and then we've got this is a bit mean for you but um (laughs) mascara or lipstick oh uh
1: honestly mascara I'm um I believe like what it does to your face when you have no mascara on versus mascara is quite dramatic and I definitely don't feel kind of myself without mascara on lipstick is awesome but definitely kind of a luxury to me like I think lipsticks are real like yeah it puts you in a a specific mood whereas
0: I definitely wear mascara every day hands down yeah yeah it makes Mm -hmm. such a difference even if that's all you put on Um, And I'm sure you're not just saying that because that's the first product from Indigo and Iris, which we will hear all about soon. Yes. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) All right. Last one. Another easy one. Breakfast or dinner?
1: Breakfast. Yeah. I'm a real morning person. Um, My breakfasts aren't usually very interesting, but I definitely look forward to breakfast the most. Yeah.
0: What kind of things do you have? I'm so plain.
1: I'm gluten intolerant. So I have, everything's always gluten free, but I'll just have gluten free toast with some kind of fix and fog flavor on, um, whatever's in the pantry, and yeah, that's literally most. I have been making pancakes more during lockdown. Um, there's a great like gluten-free buttermilk pre-mix that you can buy from the supermarket, and yeah, I've been treating myself to that quite a few mornings of the lockdown. So yeah.
0: Oh, you can't go wrong with fix and fog on toast with a cup of coffee or tea. That's my daily go-to for sure. All right, so now we will jump into hearing all about those kind of early days of Indigo and Iris and how you guys got started. And for a second, we are just going to pause the fact that we are still in lockdown for COVID 19. So, Hannah, you are actually the CEO of Indigo and Iris, and it was your friend Bonnie and founder Bonnie who in the first place founded the brand, but you did come into the picture reasonably early on, I gather. So what were you personally doing, Hannah, before you got involved? Did you study along the way somewhere there? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it was quite an interesting start. I I studied law and accounting at the University of Canterbury, uh, but while I was there, I definitely became super passionate about social enterprises and just that different model of business that I kind of became very, set on being the way all businesses should be run and that that would solve all our issues and that was kind of my my like mindset and um yeah so once i kind of was in the final years of my uni degrees i really wanted to make sure i could be in that kind of area of social enterprise so i then actually co-founded a business at university called Little Yellow Bird which is another um, kind of well-known social enterprise in um, New Zealand and that was a really great kind of start to my social enterprise journey and um, really getting to see how you kind of start and you know manufacture clothing differently and and just run your business in a different way. It was super eye-opening and I knew that I was on the right path. Um, I did decide to kind of my journey with Little Yellow Bird and for about three months I didn't really do much I was in Wellington and I um, definitely was on a bit of a soul searching journey of what's next Um, and then I got a phone call from the middle of America somewhere I think maybe Orlando I wasn't sure I can't remember now from um, a girl called Bonnie and Bonnie and I had met at a social enterprise Event in Nairobi, Kenya, out of all places. Is that Um, the one that
0: was hosted by Barack Obama? Did I hear that? Yes,
1: yeah, yeah. So Bonnie and I were super lucky to be chosen by the US Embassy as the two New Zealanders to go to this event. And um, it was co hosted by Barack Obama. It was full of entrepreneurs and amazing people from around the world um, just talking about. Uh, entrepreneurship actually it wasn't social entrepreneurship it was all types of entrepreneurship and um, because we were the two New Zealanders we obviously became best friends (laughs) Um, and we just kind of stuck to each other and and went on the journey together and yeah that was kind of a few it was about two years before that Um, but she called me up uh, yeah two years later and said Hannah I need you like she was basically in tears, I need you to come on board, be the CEO of Indigo and Iris. And it was very um, emotional for me as well because obviously I was in this like no job soul searching situation. And I was like, of course, it was just so perfect. It just seemed to be fate that she kind of needed that. And Bonnie's kind of, she'd been working on Indigo and Iris and the idea and the vision for a while, but she had identified that she was definitely the creative and she had the kind of, Vision and she understood the products, but she didn't really enjoy the business side of things and So what she wanted was me to come on board as CEO and actually just get shit done is what I like to say um, and, and start so I came on board straight away basically and But within a few months we raised um, our kind of first seed capital and then did a Kickstarter and that's how we kind of started
0: That's so cool. It's so serendipitous, and like the timing and everything. Because who knows what you know? She if she'd made that call to you three months earlier so it might not have been the right time but it all sounds like it just came together beautifully which is so cool and do you think that you could quickly tell us through take us through what inspired bonnie in the first place for the idea because obviously she isn't here but i hope that she won't mind you speaking for her because i think that hearing that sort of story will really set the scene for people listening of inspiration for the brand and everything
1: basically bonnie uh Went to Vanuatu to visit a friend, and while she was there, she just kind of happened to stumble across um, some work that was being done by the Fred Hollows Foundation, and she was able to see a woman have her sight restored, and she kind of saw it and was like, "That was amazing." Um, she found out a little bit more about it and realized how cheap it was, and kind of just thought. Oh my gosh that's like so cool and and that was kind of it she just kind of left vanuatu and was like cool that was a great experience and what happened is she kind of came straight back to auckland and was an internship uh doing an internship at new zealand fashion week and she kind of then saw a real contrast between i guess priorities and uh you know someone was getting upset over the wrong color shoe at fashion week and she was like how is this a problem when people who don't have sight you know in the Pacific Islands?" so i think she just kind of had this real contrasting moment and a bit of an a life-changing experience that made her think you know, people need to be doing more and be thinking about how they can like help the world and the problems. But for a long time, she kind of had that mindset of people need to be doing it, like other people, not necessarily her. And I think that's a real kind of issue that people face where they constantly talk about, oh, those people need to do this. And oh, someone needs to fix that issue and never kind of think, maybe it could be me um, and she definitely got that so while well, she was studying um, she was studying event management I believe somewhere in Auckland and she quit and just kind of was on this path to to be that person that did something about um, the blindness kind of crisis I guess you could call it in the Pacific Islands and she yeah and then she came up with the idea to kind of mascara and mascara for sight and that she would donate the profits from selling a mascara to restore sight to people in the Pacific Islands, So yeah, that was kind of her first initial process and she got a lot of support. So she, people kind of heard about it and just thought that's so great. People need, to, you know, that needs to happen. And then as I said, she worked really hard on the kind of vision and the branding and, and that real creative side of a business, but just didn't quite have the, not necessarily the skills, but she just didn't have the passion to do the business side, which is really important. I think people as, you know, founders and, um, they always put on this pressure that they have to be good at everything and do every single part of the business. But the fact is, is, you know, you might not actually be interested in that side and you don't have to be good at it. And you might as well bring someone on that really does love that side. And so wise. Yeah. yeah, And she, and it is actually amazing. Um, in terms of a founder to bring on a CEO basically before it had even launched is so brave and, and takes a lot of courage and a lot of, um, you know, she obviously had zero ego to, to, you know, she was very happy to kind of bring someone else on. And I think that's actually been something that's made Indigon our success.
0: I think there's a real risk if uh, you aren't aware of that, and you, as the kind of creative founder, you do end up doing all the business stuff, and then it kills your kind of joy because you're doing all these, you're forcing yourself into these things that don't come naturally, and you're begrudging them, and then you end up just kind of begrudging the whole thing. Whereas I think so wise what Bonnie did to just be really self-aware, I guess, of like her strengths, and like you say, brave enough to take a punt on bringing someone in before it had even launched. Like that's fantastic, um, and I think. You mentioned, I'll just point out quickly the cost of the eyesight because that was part of the story there. I think I read it's like $25 to new zealand dollars to fix so like a curable eyesight that's just insane and when you pitch that against what um, bonnie was seeing at fashion week like imagine how much those shoes that were the wrong color cost <laughs> like the yeah the contrast is just so stark and i love that she she saw that and that that spurred her into action do you know how she came up with the name of indigo and iris it's so such a good name
1: Yes, yeah, we we always laugh about it because we think it could have a really great story, but it doesn't really. So basically, um, Bonnie originally saw our brand being quite Ocean themed, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not a creative so I don't understand the kind of process of this But she explained it to me that she pictured this kind of purpley blue Branding and she started to write down all the different types of purples and blues and all the different colored names And she kind of saw indigo and then she saw iris and she was like, oh, they look so pretty together And that's kind of how it happened. It actually took her a while to realize iris obviously is also an eye part of your eye and that really fitted really well with what we were doing so yeah, there's not kind of an amazing story about it, but it was definitely a creative process for her. And I'm so, I was very happy with the name. Um, I've kind of been involved in entrepreneurship and kind of watch people grow businesses. And it always kind of, I always want to say oh are you sure you want that to be the name forever like I think at the beginning people just give it any name and they don't think about it but I think Bonnie has given it a name that's going to hopefully last us a long time it's it's got a real life to it so
0: yeah definitely it is a very beautiful name and I think it does I can tell it came from a creative place because it does have a a really visual like even in your head when you read it or say it you kind of get this inky kind of slightly moody vibe from it which I really like that's what's all right, let's talk a bit about your first product then. So for everyone listening, the first product that Indigo and Iris bought out was a mascara that was called Levitate. And 50% of the profits of that, like you've mentioned, go to the amazing Fred Hollows Foundation. So I imagine for most people listening, they're like, okay, so you, you were like, I want to make a mascara where do you even start making a mascara? Like there must be a million steps from idea to fruition. So it'd be cool if you could take us through maybe those steps or some of the key ones along the way.
1: Sure. So Bonnie did try and make mascara in her kitchen. (laughs) Um, So I think people always try and start obviously at home and and can I make this product myself? She quickly learned that mascara isn't kind of like a soap or a face cream. It's quite actually, you know, there's a lot of technical stuff to a mascara. Um, So she basically started asking around. And as I said earlier, she had quite a lot of interest and support and she got involved in Live the Dream. Um, So that was a program run by Guy Ryan and basically helping young entrepreneurs kind of fulfill their dreams or at least give them the skills to understand what they're gonna need to do to do that. And she started to kind of gain quite a lot of good connections and really you know people obviously knew she was trying to make a mascara so she just kind of kept getting introduced to different people and they would introduce her to someone else who would introduce her to someone else and um she kept kind of getting to each she kind of went from New Zealand to Australia to Japan I believe um there might have been another country in between but then she realized Europe definitely makes the best makeup they they have an amazing you know amazing facilities they're just quite well known to be you know great creators of cosmetics so she kind of thought okay europe sounds great and then um she got a really awesome introduction from someone to a factory in milan and she you know got sent samples and she kind of started working with them and then quite early on in the process, realized that their minimum order quantity was huge. And I think that's the hard thing with manufacturing and stuff. It's very hard to get kind of small batches out of big factories. Usually, you know, I'm talking tens of thousands of minimum order quantities. So she kind of saw that as a problem, but then loved the formula and the kind of way that they were going to make it, that she was very set kind of on making it in that factory or in that area. Um, so yeah, they the way that we kind of went about it was, you can just contact a lot of manufacturers and ask for samples and things. And because she had the connection given to her by a person that was well known to the factory, they I guess they trusted us a little bit. Um, and then when I came on board, I actually went over and visited the factory and, and met with the, the people there and kind of developed a relationship. But it really did take Bonnie a good year and a half to
0: to go through that process to even get to that factory. So
1: it was quite a long process.
0: I love the way that you say that, obviously the donation uh, side of things and the social enterprise is a big part of it, but the other big part of it is it needs to be a really good quality makeup. Like that's the first and foremost, a good quality makeup brand. And I think that the fact that you've gone to such lengths and taken so long to make sure it really was a good quality product that people want to use aside from the social enterprise side of things, it, it really shows your dedication to that. So let's talk a bit about the Fred Hollow side of things. What has it been like working with a charity? Like, have they, were they very open to receiving your help when you first got in touch with them?
1: Yeah, it was quite interesting for me, actually. I think it was one part that I just didn't really think would be an issue. I think I just thought, oh, you know, you just donate money, that's fine. But I guess they definitely had hesitations around aligning with a brand that they had never heard of (laughs) and it's you've got to be careful obviously um if we're kind of putting out that that we're associated with them just by the the fact that we give them donations we don't want to be you know them selling really horrible mascara that kind of understood that and so from early on we kind of just didn't mention them for a while until we'd kind of really developed that good relationship and um yeah, originally I kind of, we were looking at like, oh, do we have contracts with them? Do we kind of have any of that stuff? But then, you know, it came down to the fact that we're just donating money. So we can just go online like anyone would and go, here's, you know, $3,000, <laughs> thanks. You know, um, so so I think we almost overcomplicated it. Like we nearly got to a point where we, we were overcomplicating it. But now we just literally make donations like anyone would make um, a donation. So, yeah, it's pretty... Um, Interesting. I hadn't really worked with charities before and they obviously are a huge, you know, well-established charity that do amazing work. So it was quite cool for me to get that experience and understand how their brains
0: work a bit. Uh It's interesting because yeah, like you say, you don't You don't think it will ever be hard to give people money. (laughs) But at the same time, these charities have spent years building up their own brands and they need to protect them. So to some extent, there's a bit of a balancing act for them, you know, the getting the money versus the kind of quality of where it comes from must be a factor too. So that's quite interesting. And I'm sure that'll be interesting for people out there who are thinking about something similar, like it's not necessarily a given.
1: No. Yeah, you do have to kind of develop a relationship with them.
0: Yeah. And it's an important part of it, for sure.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, One thing that I'm always kind of interested in with the social enterprise model, and I'm sure you've got heaps of experience, so you'll have thoughts on that. But um, a lot of people say they'll donate, say, like X amount of their profits. But that kind of assumes that you'll actually make a profit and (laughs) I know that for like uh, new businesses that's actually not a given which everyone out there might not know but it often takes like say like three five years to actually turn it on on the books a profit um so it would be possible and I'm definitely not saying that this is what you've done but it would be possible for a business to say they're doing it to get the goodwill and technically if you never make any profits you never actually make any donations and again I know that's not what you've done I want to hear like how have you made sure in in practice that that money is actually kind of going to the right place? Because I read that you've already cured like over 300 people's sight, which is obviously working. So how does that process work for you?
1: Yeah, it was definitely, that was kind of the part that I was super passionate about. I guess I, as I said, I studied business at uni and I just was always, you know, fixated on this business model that to me was just set out to ruin the world (laughs) you know like it was so money driven and it was very like bottom line and you know it was sharehold filling those shareholders pockets and it just made no sense to me and I think what my goal was and still is is to prove that there's a different way to do it and I mean, social enterprise, unfortunately, we don't actually have a legal structure for it in New Zealand. So there's not actually a set of guidelines. um, Well, I guess, sorry, there is guidelines, but there's not a set of actual law that you have to follow to call yourself a social enterprise. So there is a lot of room, I guess, for kind of bending the truth or or misleading people, which I've seen and I know happens, which, you know, obviously makes me sad. But um, I think for, for us, My kind of main things are, one, we definitely are a social enterprise at heart so every time we make a decision whether it's the packaging we use or even when I employ people or I work with contractors or I you know have any kind of interaction I always try and choose the best option on terms of like in terms of social and environmental kind of aspects and I think that's kind of you have to have that at your core and then obviously the second side of it is the donating of the profits and I'm happy to say (laughs) I don't know if I'm happy to say but I'm willing to say that you know everyone right now that we have not made an accounting profit as such so we definitely um, haven't got to the end of the year with a nice big you know hundred K profit in the bank um, so technically as you say we could we could be donating no money but for me it's not why I'm doing it so if I wasn't making donations within you know the first two years I'd be feeling pretty shitty and not really think I'm doing what I what I set out to do so what we've kind of done is 50% of our accounting profit in the future will always be donated to our charities. Um, we've set that up in a way where 50% of our is actually owned by a charitable trust called the Indigo and Iris Foundation. So I've set that up so that if we do start to get super, you know, we get, to get big and we start to make a really great accounting profit and we're paying out dividends and all that great stuff, that will forever be in our structure that we donate 50%. But in the early days, which we're still very much in at the moment, it's based on kind of a monthly sales and me being like, how much can we afford to donate? So I I like to look at our kind of, you know, our income. So how many sales we made that month and then look at, you know, our expenses, our outgoings and things like that and go, okay, we can probably do a thousand dollars and not Put our business under, or, or or not be able to continue for the following month. So it is a bit of a um, ad hoc way at the moment. But I and, and I've written a blog about it on our, our website for customers so that we are transparent. But it, it, for us, it's just making as much as many donations as we can. And we always say to people, you know, the more sales we make this month, the more we will be able to donate. If if we have a really horrible month, we might not make a donation that month. But we're it's in our you know, it's in our to-do list and, and we try really hard to do it every month. So yeah, it, it has been difficult at times, you know, when we haven't been able to make a donation for a few months. And I guess, as I said, as you say, you know, we are saying 50% of profit, we're not making a profit. So we're not, we're not lying, but it does still make me feel a bit like, oh, you know, I really want to make a donation. Um, But my accountants are still like, well, Hannah, you can't go under cause then you'll make no donations. So it's, it is a real balancing act. Um, And yeah, yeah. So it's, it's kind of, Definitely a hard thing to manage, and I think there are definitely different ways to do it. A lot of the buy one give one models are very straightforward, so I quite I do I actually really like the model buy one give one. Um, for us, it didn't quite work. I don't know if giving a mascara necessarily it's quite a, a luxury product. It didn't quite work, but um, yeah, there's there's lots of ways that I've thought about, even now, still thinking about with the accountants um, how we can make it better. I guess the model, but. If there was a legal structure or someone giving me exactly the guideline, it would have been great. But um, I guess it was my mission to try and create one myself. So, yeah. Mm,
0: sounds like you've got you've got a really great balance and a very kind of common sense approach to it, which is what is needed, really. Because, like you say, it is quite new and um, the model, it doesn't exist. So, I, yeah, I love your approach. And being open and honest about it is 100% the best thing to do. Like, you can't communicate too much on this. You You just have to be, like, totally open so everyone knows where their money's going and they can see that which is really cool and so you you mentioned briefly that you raised money on kickstarter when you first started so I think people will be really interested to hear how that process works and what that was like because it's obviously a great way for people to kick, some, kick start, <laughs> something off in the first place um, t- talk us through that a little bit
1: Sure. Yeah. So it definitely, um, when I came on board and Bonnie had this relationship with a factory that had such a large minimum order quantity, we knew that we were going to need some capital to start. And I kind of had never really heard much about crowdfunding, but Bonnie was pretty keen to do a Kickstarter and we did raise a little bit of money prior to through private investment, which really helped us kind of build a really great Kickstarter campaign. So I think Kickstarter and crowdfunding, so Pledge Me is a New Zealand example, are amazing platforms that basically allow you to validate your idea before you spend lots of money on it. Because I think the thing with a product company is, yeah, usually you do need to invest quite a lot to get some product to then sell, whereas Kickstarter and Pledge Me allow you to basically validate it with customers, get them to put their money where their mouth is before you go and take that big leap. So for us, it was amazing to be able to say, okay, well, we need to buy 10,000 plus mascaras to start, but we need to make sure people actually want to buy it. Um, and we were pretty lucky that Bonnie had started to create a community basically over two years before we even did the kickstarter so people were almost waiting for the launch and were ready to kind of help us create this product and and launch our brand so it's really important to make sure that if you're going to do a kickstarter or crowdfund you have a crowd already that you're you've already told about it it's it, kickstarter and pledge me are not a great way to to launch a product in terms of telling your family and friends for the first time, once you've already launched it, it needs to be a massive build up and a, and a big hype session for all your friends and family before you actually launch your crowdfund. So yeah, we were really lucky. Um, we kind of got on board a company called narrative who helped us run the campaign. So they kind of knew a little bit about campaigning and they had a lot of great ideas and helped us with all the copy and, you know, had, give, gave us ideas about the video and things like that. And, um, they were just super helpful because obviously it was only Bonnie and I, but having them on board made it feel like we were a team of about 20 people instead, which was really awesome. So yeah, it was such a whirlwind of a time of, I think I've written a blog about that as well because it was just such a crazy month um, trying to raise money for a company to launch. So yeah. Oh, it was that's awesome. great.
0: There's so many good tips there. I love that. And I think cause people might not realize like Kickstarter isn't just like signing up to Facebook or something. There's, there's so much to it that you have to, Put on there to make sure it's professional and you know you need an amazing video and that's all a part of the what makes a campaign successful so it- yeah your campaign was very successful and I guess that is because you took it so seriously and invested quite a lot in it yourselves um, and so then I guess at the end of that they you know you get the money um, I guess Kickstarter take a cut and then the mascara arrives from Italy very exciting moment and you're ready to send it off which sounds very simple but I imagine it's probably not do you how do you do all the bits like getting boxes and um, did you have to do like barcodes and any safety stuff and what kind Of challenges happen in that stage of the process?
1: Yeah, it it definitely um, took a lot of research, I guess. We kind of had developed the product and we had the sample ready to go with our fa- manufacturers, but then of course there's a box to put it in, there's the packaging, there's the shipping and that logistics side of things I definitely quite enjoy. So I was very excited to kind of jump on that. Um, yeah, it was very exciting to think about how that was going to work. And then Bonnie definitely took charge of the, you know, the packaging, the how it looked and um, what colours we used and, and how it kind of all came together. Uh, we then actually used a manufacturer for the box in Italy who worked with our factory. Um, so they kind of, there were like three parts of that. So it was the, the formula and then there was the tube and then there was the box. And those were three different manufacturers that all worked together initially to basically bring together our product. And then we obviously had to ship it over to New Zealand, which I mean even that in itself is such a massive logistical nightmare you know you've got gst you've got duties you've got you know a massive pallet of mascara that needs to arrive initially there's insurance and it's lots of things that i think it's yeah it's hard to it's very overwhelming i was it was very overwhelming i can tell you that i was very um it actually you know leading up to hitting the target once we hit the target I think Bonnie was in Wellington and she went out with champagne and celebrated with her friends, which is probably the more responsible way to do it. Whereas I went onto my computer and didn't sleep for the next 24 hours because I was so, I guess I was excited, but then I was like, there is so much to do. Like I was just overwhelmed. Um, So yeah, it's, it's definitely, I, it's hard to explain. I guess I'm, I'm quite self-taught. Like a lot of the stuff I've figured out is because I've done it, and done it wrong and then worked out the better way to do it. So um, I actually do help a few companies in Christchurch who are starting out um, now just because I say, oh well, you know, I can help you because I know what I did wrong so I can make sure you don't do that wrong. <laughs> so, you know, little things with shipping and making sure they've got the best rates and they're shipping in the best bags and they're making sure that, you know, there's little, um, tricks that you can make sure you're doing to save you money. And those are all things that I literally just worked out by doing it wrong and then going, Oh, oh, we need to do it a different way. <laughs> so, um, it is a real journey. And even now thinking back and talking to you about it, it I forget how kind of clueless I really was about a lot of the stuff. And, um, you know, I've just literally learned from experience, I guess now.
0: it's cool that you can share that around now I guess a lot of people the way I think about it is like you if you knew all of that stuff at the time or before you you might not have done it so in a way that that's kind of an essential ingredient, that kind of naivety of everything, Um, or else it might have put you off so much from the start that you didn't even try. So it can't be sneezed at for sure. And you did get quite a lot of press around the business and the the launch and Kickstarter and everything. Did you like chase that with a PR firm or anything, or did it kind of naturally gravitate towards you because it's such a great story and it's an aesthetic brand and it's run by two young females and things like that? What did you find
1: yeah, I def- oh, we didn't have a PR company, um, but I did find the story really helped. You know, we, we obviously had a story to tell. It wasn't just a random brand launching a random product. There was a lot of story behind it and the media did seem to like that, but it was a lot of hustle um, by myself and um, my friend Erin, she kind of helped me. She um, runs Narrative, the company I was talking about earlier. So her and I definitely were emailing hundreds of people a day trying to get press Um, I think I look back now and I know that that's what PR companies do but I think um, obviously we were trying to save every single penny we could and um, now it's definitely something that I enjoy and and when we uh, were raising money for our second product I did the same thing again you know just have got an email list now of people that I'll har- harass is probably not the right word to use but you know just get on the phone with and say hey this is what we're doing can you help us out and I think we're really privileged in New Zealand to even be able to do that I think um, you know if you're in America it's pretty hard to just bring up like NBC and say hey <laughs> put me on TV or whatever so I think um, I've realized that early on how the media what, i guess like what they wanted to hear if that makes sense so the story they wanted to hear and i'm not a writer or anything um but i just kind of spun a good story i guess and and, and when i say spin, i'm not making it up obviously it was a real story but you just have to be able to word it correctly so that they hear the little hook and they go oh yeah that sounds good um and yeah we were lucky once once you get one article it is a bit of a like i don't know waterfall effect in new zealand so you know, they all want you once one's got you, they, they all want you kind of thing. So yeah, I found getting a few early on, then we kind of got approached by other people. And, and yeah, it just worked really well. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. One is like you say, the um, having a story. And I think that's really key when you're starting a business. Even if there's not a natural amazing story like yours built into the product, you can find a story somewhere in your journey or the process or something and like pick your story and then really hammer that into everything. And I think that's like you say, that's what press and media pick up on. So that's really smart for businesses to think about. And then also, I think the fact that you can do your press and your PR yourself. You don't need an agency. Obviously, agencies are amazing, but when you're beginning, you can't always afford that. So having the confidence to know that you can just email a reporter from The Herald and tell them all about it. You don't need anything flash. Um, If the story's good enough, they'll pick up on it and they won't care if it's come from an agency or not. And that's really cool that you did that yourself. Uh, I'd like to touch quickly, I want to get on to hearing all about your next product too, but just quickly, I want to touch on that uh, young female thing that I just mentioned, um, because I know I threw that in there myself, um, and you do happen to have a young female founder and be a young female yourself, and I'd be interested in your experience around that, because I know myself being a young, well, I was young (laughs) when I started my business, um, I think that played into it too, and I know there's an argument that we shouldn't even have that term female founder. I And I totally agree with that. Let's just have founders. Um, how do you guys feel about that tag, I guess? Like, are you okay with it because it's helped you out? Or would you rather that was not part of your story?
1: Yeah, I'm in a bit of a like two worlds about it. I think it's, we're in a really hard place at the moment where we still are having to fight kind of to get, you know, we're not even equality. It's not kind of there yet. And there's still a lot of disadvantages, unfortunately, that we face just because we are women. I think... I don't mind the label. I obviously am a female, so I'm okay with that. that. True, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it just depends on how it's being used. I It does frustrate me a lot at the moment. I'm kind of sick of female events because I just don't know if they're actually doing as, I don't know, as much as they could be. So obviously female events and female-focused, you know, scholarships and female-focused grants and things like that, they're all great and it's it's awesome that they exist. But I think... The problem is, is that, you know, not to get super deep, but men and boys and, you know, the other genders need to be in the conversation. And the more we keep kind of excluding them and segregating ourselves, you know, by putting only women in a room at an event, it's just not actually benefiting anyone. And I think... I've been to quite a few different events lately or spoken at events where it's, you know, all about females and it's great. But I think if there were men in the audience listening to these females and telling their story would be kind of making a lot more progress in in what we're trying to do. So I don't mind being called a female founder because I definitely am. But I think as long as it's not me, it doesn't mean that only females listen to me or only females use me as a, a role model or whatever. I think men need to be able to feel like they can reach out to females if that makes sense. So I think, I don't know, I feel like we almost are almost just segregating ourselves by constantly putting that female label on it. Um, so yeah, I think for progress for like, to progress, we need to start just calling ourselves founders and, you know, come to this event and listen to these amazing New Zealand founders yes. or, or social entrepreneurs and, and not kind of putting a, a gender label on it, I think would be better.
0: I love that. Yeah, you're right. I think it creates like a us and them, which it, that's the whole problem in the first place. Like, um, it, yeah, just opening it up to like, let's like with this podcast. So I, this is not a, a podcast about female founders, but it's just turning out that all of these amazing businesses happen to be founded by females, but I definitely don't want it to be pigeoned into just talking to females i think it shouldn't even be part of the conversation so i'm not even touching on it until right now um but i feel like we could probably talk for hours on that topic alone uh but let's let's move on to hearing about your next product so i think it's right this is not out yet but you're going to have four shades of lipstick is that right yes correct
1: yeah yes so they yeah it's very exciting we basically um decided we obviously needed more products. We wanted to be a beauty brand, not just a mascara brand. Uh, but the process was very long and hard and is still kind of underway at the moment. Um, but yeah, we, to choose our next product, we basically asked our customers. So this is kind of an idea I had where Bonnie and I, I guess had quite different ideas about what our next product should be. So I thought, well, let's just ask, you know, we've got a customer base that buy our mascara, let's see what they want. And I think, I don't know if that's, that's weird or new or how other businesses do it. But it just made so much sense to me. Um, so yeah, we literally did a survey to our customers and, and they came up with lipstick. So yeah, that's where we, where we got to.
0: Fantastic way to do it. Absolutely. And like, why not? You've got this whole audience there and then that way they're much more likely to buy what it ends up being if it's, if it's what they wanted. Has the process been very similar to when you did the mascara, like you've got a bit of a blueprint now or has it, is it a totally different ball game developing a lipstick?
1: Uh, it was pretty similar. We um, luckily could work with the same factory, so um, I did look around. So I was, I was kind of keen to try and find a New Zealand manufacturer, and we did find a f- one. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, they couldn't make it vegan. So we're um, kind of set on having all our products being vegan and cruelty free, just because there's actually there's no need for animal products and makeup. Um, and yeah, there was like literally it was almost a technical difficulty that they had with their formulas, the formulas couldn't be used without using beeswax. And yeah, we, we um, don't want to use beeswax cause it's not vegan. So we ended up kind of looking at other, I looked at Korea, I looked at all sorts of different um, manufacturers. And then in the end I was like, actually, the samples that our, our factory sent us are the best so we we decided to stick with them um so the process was pretty similar we definitely realized that uh, again the minimum order quantity was going to be so massive um you know we re- required a lot of upfront capital that just wasn't in our bank account so uh, we did another crowdfund <laughs> through pledge me and uh, that was a pretty similar story again super difficult and i probably uh, after the second crowdfund, I don't think I'll be doing one again. (laughs) So, um, not, not to put people off, but just, you know, it's, it is a very, it's a hard work. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we, we did raise the money, but unfortunately the situation we're all facing at the moment has slowed down the production quite a lot, but we are definitely going to have, um, four lipsticks out by the end of the year. (laughs) I'll say that definitely will be by the end of the year. And I'm so excited from a, just from like a marketing and perspective to be able to have more products because I love mascara, but there's only a certain amount of, you know, shots that you can take with mascara and like (laughs) our content is starting to run dry. So I can't wait
0: to be able to put some, you know, bold lipsticks on some amazing models and um, just freshens things up a little bit for everyone and will kind of reinvigorate you you working in the brand and everything yeah exactly and I've just mentioned for so everyone can look out for them when they do come out the lipsticks the profit 50% of the profit of those your charity is going to be dressed for success for those which I think is a very exciting choice I'm a big fan of what they're doing for everyone out there they are helping New Zealand women re-enter the workforce with arming them and dressing them for their interviews which is definitely can't be underestimated it's very valuable was it hard to choose who you went with for that?
1: Yes, yeah. so I've got this real issue where I want to solve all the problems that the world <laughs> faces, um, which is really hard. So I actually ended up asking a friend uh, who was in between jobs and she's a lawyer so she's amazing at research and things and she went out I – I basically said – go out and find me our next charity. Um, we did ask our customers to vote on kind of what type of charity they wanted. And we had an overwhelming, I think it was about 70% wanted it to be a social issue versus an environmental issue, which um, I wouldn't say it was hard for me, but I was kind of excited to maybe get into more of an environmental problem. But I'm all about following our customers and listening to them. So we decided to go with a social um, a social. Charity and um, another thing that customers said is that they wanted it to be helping kind of the poverty issue in New Zealand. So I kind of gave those two things to Claire and said poverty and social. You know, can, can you work something out? And she came to me with dress success and she said, "Oh, I just think you need to meet with them." And, and I had heard of them before, but I was probably a little bit ignorant to what they all the work that they did. Um, I kind of thought they dressed women for interviews and that was about it, but man, I went in there and I was crying, listening to the stories that they were telling me and I just kind of straight away connected and thought, you know, this makes a hundred percent, you know, sense to
0: me. And I think, um,
1: it, yeah, we were, we were pretty quick to lock them in before we even had the colors of the lipstick. So <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I love your approach to everything and how like customer led you are. It, yeah, it's definitely going to Prove to be really effective for you guys, I think, and I we will get on to talking about what's happening right now because I know that's a big part of things. But just quickly before we do, can you tell me a bit about the kind of bigger picture plan for Indigo and Iris? Where is the where do you want this all to lead ultimately?
1: Yeah, it's it's been pretty similar from the beginning. I think quite early on, Bonnie and I worked out that we we weren't going to be the next Mac or a clinic or um, you know an Estelador. So I think. Yeah, we we actually went to America and got to visit the clinic's um, offices, which clinic's part of a massive brand. It's owned by, uh, you know, a conglomerate that owns Bobby Brown, Mac, uh, Tom Ford, like basically every makeup brand you can name is owned by the same people. Um, And we just were there and kind of it really – shook me. I think it made me realise that's not what I want to be. I don't want a New York office and hundreds of workers that just don't look very excited. And <laughs> like it just yeah, straight away we kind of decided we we're keen and uh, not to be a lifestyle brand. I don't really know what that even means, but I think we were definitely going to be different and we weren't doing it to kind of be that big multi-million dollar New York company. So because of that it's always kind of led me to how I do business, I guess, and we're very keen to kind of get into lots of um, different boutique stores. So at the moment, we're in about 23 different stores, kind of like Flo and Frankie, Infinite Definites. Um, we've been in Crusher's store in Auckland, little, you know, stores that, I shouldn't say little, but stores that are really community focused and very, you um, all their brands have been really created and thought about and we just wanted to be a part of that type of community. We, we can't imagine us on shelves of, you know, the warehouse or supermarkets or, you know, that kind of thing. And you, you've kind of got to know where your brand's going to sit to be able to plan for the future. So, yeah, my, my dream's definitely to have about 10 products. So I want to be able to have quite a full face of makeup that's saving the world, I guess. So each product be, um, you know, donating different profit to different charities. Uh, and yeah, just just having a good uh, product range and be spread across New Zealand and potentially a bit further. We're, we've got a store in Australia that's stocking us at the moment. So maybe New Zealand and Australia. And just, I guess I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm not, don't have big goals, but I'm not kind of that like world domination mindset. It's not kind of my um, my way of, doing business. So I I still like to grow organically and, and be um, growing with our customers and you know, I don't wanna suddenly launch ten products and be overwhelming and in people's faces, I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm trying to explain what's going on in my mind is very much like, yeah, just go with the flow, I guess. It's kind of, which is very weird. Anyone that listens to this, that's my friend, will be like, what, <laughs> That's Hannah, Hannah is not a go with the flow person. But I think I've just learned that there's no point in forcing things or setting goals that are just super outrageous and going to make me feel like I'm failing every day because I'm not there so I think um yeah I'm just definitely a a see how we go and um I don't want to go big and fail I guess if that makes sense I kind of want to grow slowly which is basically the opposite of what anyone teaches you at like (laughs) any entrepreneurial thing but um it's how I want it and I guess as the owner operator it's important that it suits me. Otherwise I'll get sick of it and just leave and it will be a failure anyway. So yeah, I think it's important to know what's important to you and, and what you want and like how I picture my life, I guess, which sounds very deep, but that's important to think about when you're running your business. Um, totally. And, and it's
0: so, it's so ingrained, like you can't separate those things when you're, yeah, like you say, the owner and running it as well. And I think at the moment, uh, or what will happen when we come out of this, or uh, the covid-19 and everything is that people will be kind of turning to local and turning to community and so i mean to me just on hearing that for you know off the cuff that sounds like it may well actually serve you really well in the coming years um, going for that kind of community and local approach as we all kind of turn into ourselves a little bit more and i guess that kind of leads us on to maybe reluctantly re- returning to the real world and talking a bit about covid-19 and the impact it's had on the indigo and iris business because you are sold online through your your own channels and then also those stores that you've mentioned and obviously those things have all been shut so um tell us has that had a huge impact on the business and i guess on the you know more importantly on the profits you've been able to donate as well to your charities?
1: yeah we definitely um have have been hit i guess by covid so the kind of two things that's definitely it's the most or change the most is our online store has been closed and obviously all the stores we stock in are closed so we haven't made any sales which I guess I don't know if I'd say it's luck or if it's good planning but we've got enough finances to get us through that period so um, we've been lucky enough to not kind of have to shut everything down for good Um, it's been a hit in terms of you know, we're not making the money. But luckily, the way I've kind of set it up is our overheads are not insane. They're not huge. I'm not kind of 10 staff deep and have lots of people to pay uh, wages to, which is great. I can obviously just stop taking money from the company pretty easily and uh, live off my my savings. Um, So yeah, it's hard. To set the scene, I'm quite an optimist. So it's hard for me to kind of be that person that kind of sits and cries about it for the four weeks and then works out what to do at the end. I, I was pretty quick to make a contingency plan and put that into place and, and work out what we're going, what was gonna be the worst scenario and what was gonna be the best scenario and then kind of just work it out from then each day. So um, we will reopen in level three online, which will be really great. And hopefully our stores that we stock in, a lot of them are also opening online. So those channels will hopefully reopen up. But I guess the biggest thing for me that's kind of being the scariest I guess is our stock and our product so our factories obviously in Italy which was unfortunately hit really really hard with coronavirus and um they closed the factory I think they closed the factory well before New Zealand had even gone into lockdown so it felt pretty scary for me that New Zealand seemed to be okay but then Italy you know was completely shut down and I I was like oh no um what's going to happen there so that's been pretty scary but um they've been really amazing communicating with me and uh, you know all it it means that there could be a point in time where our crossover of stock being delivered and, and stock selling out that we might not have any stock which would be very scary and horrible but i'm hoping now the factory initially has reopened so it will take them a few months to get on top of things but i hope i'm hoping the crossover is okay and we don't ever run out of mascara but um yeah that, that was pretty scary for me just thinking whoa like if they just stopped, I'm not, I'm not in a good place. And I think that's actually opened my eyes to having backups because, you know, Italy could, you know, something else could happen in Italy that's not happening in the rest of the world. And I could be um, in this position again. So I'm trying to learn from the situation and learn from what's happened and just kind of, thinking, okay, what would I do if, the, if they closed down for good or, you know, those types of situations. So it's been a huge learning curve and um, it has been pretty stressful and um, scary, but I'm very excited to open up again next next week and hope that our customers kind of come back and maybe we get, as you say, get some new local customers that are ready to buy a uh, New Zealand brand um, makeup.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think that's a really great. Uh, like you say, op- you're an optimist, and I- I'm the same. I think the smartest thing that we can all do at the moment is just learn from this and be in a better position for. I'm not saying there's going to be another thing like this, hopefully, but for the next thing that comes along, um, and that's all we can really hope for, I guess. And have do you think there's been any change, or you will see any change to your approach in terms of your charities that you support, or anything coming out of this?
1: Uh I mean I think it's been, unfor- we haven't been able to make a donation obviously the last month just got no sales and it's with not knowing what's happening in the future it's a bit scary kind of giving money away literally but um, yeah I mean I definitely might support a health charity in the future it kind of makes made people realize how important the health system was didn't it but yeah I think we'll, we'll probably continue going forward with what we're doing and um, it's it's really just made me think about that kind of yeah Situation: If it happened again, what would we do? What what have it been our weaknesses, and how can we make them strengths and things? So, yeah, I think it'll be pretty similar going forward.
0: So you mentioned that we can you'll be back open in level three. So tell us how can everyone out there support, and you know where do we go to to purchase, and what else can we do, and everything.
1: So you can go to IndigoRS.co and Buckmaster. That's kind of the main um, the main message. So yeah, we. we just kind of need sales to, to keep going. And obviously you can do the, the social media following and share with your friends and things, but really it's just purchasing a mascara that will really help us. And um, for those that don't wear mascara, mascara is a great gift. It's also a great gift when it's a social enterprise, so you've got a great story to tell. Um, and we'll make sure we put in a nice card in the order that explains that to the person you gift it to. But yeah, it's it's a scary time I think for businesses because we all obviously just need people to spend money and then obviously a lot of people have lost their jobs and are not in a position to do that so I'm very interested um, in what's gonna happen Uh, but yeah from what I've heard so far with stores that have been open as essential services or they provide an essential product they are not seeing a massive drop and people are still buying so I hope that that goes over to our um, makeup store and people still want to buy mascara but yeah it's gonna be very interesting to see what happens
0: it is, yeah. I know I've got a long list of online shopping that I'm going to do next week, and I'm going to add Indigo and Iris to the list. I'm really excited. And I will also mention Mother's Day is coming up, so everyone can think about heading to your website to sort out mum's present too. That would work well. Definitely. And I can actually tell you that our biggest customer is mum's.
1: So, mum age, I don't know, I mean, obviously, mum's age differs, but we've got a really great customer base that I would call the mums of the world and they love Indigonaris, iris and we get such great feedback via email from, you know, anywhere between kind of, well, we've got our 20-year-olds, of course, but I've had feedback from 75-year-olds, you know, saying that they haven't worn mascara in 20 years and they do now and all this great feedback. So <laughs> it does sit well with the slightly older generation. So um, I think people think because we're obviously in our 20s that that will be our customers, but I'm absolutely in love with our customers that sit in the more kind of 50 to 70 year olds, Um, they love it and they buy it a lot. So it is a great present for those, those mums and grandmas. So good
0: that you've got such a great reach. That's awesome. So we better wrap up. I honestly have just loved hearing all of this and I feel like I could keep talking to you forever, but we better wrap up. And so to take us out, do you think you could just share with us maybe your favorite piece of advice or quote, business, life, anything? Share a little bit of wisdom with us.
1: Uh, I think my biggest piece of advice is to don't do anything that you don't actually want to do. So <laughs> that sounds really weird and straightforward, but I think I just have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people out there that I know and that I know are living lives where they're doing something that they actually just don't even enjoy. And it just breaks my heart. It, you know, it's actually makes me really sad thinking, um, how many people are out there Doing something for 40 plus hours a week and they don't even enjoy doing it and I think my biggest piece of advice is you know you don't have to start a business that's that's I'm not just preaching entrepreneurship but you just need to be doing something you enjoy and I think I'd literally prefer to make half the money but be doing something I enjoy than you know making the six-figure job but hating life and I think yeah it's just I don't know if this kind of situation we're in now will hopefully kind of shake people up a bit. But yeah, my biggest piece of advice is just to stop doing stuff you don't like.
0: <laughs> yes, I think that applies, yeah, like you say, business, work, and also other parts of life as well. I just love that. Like, it's Life's way too short to do anything you don't enjoy, like you say maybe that doesn't apply to like cleaning and things like that we should probably yeah, do that this is the old thing you have to
1: do yeah I hate cooking a lot of that yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah but in general that's
0: fantastic So thank you so much Hannah I've been a big fan of Indigo and Iris for a long time I think back in my sweet bakery days we did some cupcakes for you guys for a launch yes. and that's how I discovered you so I just love it and needless to say I'm, I've loved hearing your story and time with you so thank you for being so generous with your time what you guys are doing is just seriously so cool and and i wish you guys the best of luck from here i can't wait till you return to business as usual and to see all the rest of your other eight products that are coming in the <laughs> work so Hopefully. thank you so much hannah for joining us take care
1: no worries thank you
0: as you could probably tell i'm pretty blown away by the amazing work that hannah and bonnie are doing with indigo and iris Hannah's philosophy of not working 40-hour week in a job you don't love is 100% my jam and I love that she could share that wisdom with you and the world. Head along to indigoandiris.co and order your mascara for delivery next week. I can't wait to order mine and maybe sneak one in for mum for Mother's Day as well. You can also jump on and follow them on Instagram at indigoandiris to keep up to date with their exciting adventures and new launches to come as well. Thanks a million to you for coming along for this chat with Hannah. And just quickly before you go anywhere, please take a second to pop a quick review on Apple Podcasts. It would really just mean the world to me. Take care and until next time, bye.